from, I'd like to see if we can't get close to doing a section every week or so, so we, we can do this in seven weeks, month and a half, eight weeks. I don't know what it's going to take, but... <laughs> Any any prayers, any prayer requests? Yes, Barbara. Let's remember Barbara and her knee. Missing her today. Say who? Barbara. Barbara. She's Warnke. 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 You know, all these that's over here. What's going What's on? Her knee. She's been having problems with her knee. I mean, is it serious? Is she going to surgery or seeing? Well, I don't know. Um, she saw a doctor a couple weeks ago, and she was getting physical therapy. And when we started this Bible study on Sunday, and this past Sunday, I mean, she could hardly walk. It was uh, it was uh, terrible. So uh, she got a lidocaine shot this week, but I don't know what's going on now. But, well, we didn't hear any warning of yeah. this. Um, anybody else? Um, <clears throat> I just have to say again, <laughs> I love you guys, some of you. <laughs> I just so, <laughs> I so admire what you're doing, what you're doing to give the time to you guys. Um, is that it? No more prayer requests? Let's, Let's remember Sue. She doesn't hopefully need our prayers, but she's somewhere yes. on the other side of the world. Oh, that's right, yes. Mm -hmm. Sue. 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 I'm not going to pray for her because I'm too angry. She should not have left. Ruth, <laughs> are you kidding? <laughs> Come on, let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you and especially for your gift this morning. I think I've said this prayer. Um, with you guys before. I want to do it for a little bit. It's the prayer that I say each morning myself, except I say it for myself and Suzanne. Um, but I want to say it with you guys because you, you know that one of my concerns in the work we're doing together is to recover some sense of um, the Trinity, that it, it's really the source of everything. And, and sometimes I'm sad because um, I think we treat God as if He's alone. Or it's the Jewish God or the Islamic God. Our God is three persons, and there's an indwelling. We've gone over those passages where Thomas said, one is not less than two, and two is not more than, you know, that there's this whole, and they all partake of it. That's such a mystery. But one of the wonderful insights to come out of it is that um, by their nature, they love the good. The Father loves the Son, or, yeah, and the love between them is shared so... If we're made in his image, we were made to love and be loved. We were meant to indwell when the church talks about one flesh. I so believe this in my heart of hearts. We're, we're, the marriages are so often marriages of convenience. You know, they're just people get a job and they stay together because it's more convenient. We're called to become one. <coughs> As, with all the risks that that involves, if you can imagine, that Suzanne would have to take on the risk of taking somebody like me into her, mm -hmm. and equally that I would have to risk taking somebody like her. If minimal risk, though, minimal. 
more and more nervous about going on. <laughs> oh, you guys. Anyway, the, um, the, you know, we're called to be one, and, it's, and sometimes that's a crucifixion. I mean, we all know it. It's just, I mean, given the, our modern predicament. So, just to keep this trinity in mind, so I'm going to say the prayer that I often do. Father, um, help each one of the men in this group to be the son that you've given him to be. Let each one of the women become the daughter you've given her to be. Christ, you said we were your friends, no longer your servants, that we know you in another way. Help us to be your friend and so to love as you do. With the cost of the cross that, that leaves us with. Holy Spirit, your gift, help each one of us to be gifts ourselves, to learn to offer ourselves freely. Whatever you do, you do it without calling attention to yourself. Um, hard to do um, in our pride. Um, help us to learn to make our lives gifts in what we do as well. Um, one of the lines in the book from Zosima is, he's speaking to the priests um, on the day he's going to die. And he says to the priests, um, you're only here because the, we're the worst sinners in the world. Um, we, are, we are not as good as other people. And if anybody's here because he thinks he's better than somebody, he shouldn't be here. That they're there because they know they're the worst sinners in the world. One of the things that we took away from Scarlet Letter is that group of people who think that they're better than other people and what that does for them. Um, we're in a church um, called you. You came for us because we were undeserving. <clears throat> Help each of us not to be afraid of our sins. Um, as the saints get closer to you, they come closer to your light. As they approach your light, they see their sins more clearly, not less. Um, help us not to be afraid of our sins, um, knowing that you came for us. T to have the courage, the humility, to, to do what we do and not let them keep us um, from all that you call us to. Don't let us get, let our sins get in the way of the good you called it. Not be afraid of them, please. Um, offer, um, ask for a special grace for Barbara. Um, surround her with protection, help her kneel, get the attention, the care that it needs, um, help quiet her heart with whatever problems it presents her with. And we ask a blessing on Sue, um, an old-time friend. Um, I know she will miss us in some ways. She's been with us for so long. Um, let her carry us with her. Find a pleasure in doing that and keep her safe on her journey. Um, and bring her back again, safely. We offer these prayers in Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay. Um, I'm going to read a poem um, from a Hungarian poet um, who died in the Second World War and whose works have just been recently discovered. And he's like a number of other poets from Europe and, and particularly from, you know, the Baltic region, um, some of whom have become uh, Nobel Prize <coughs> poets. Um, 
There's a lot of extraordinary work going on, it, and we're not aware of it all in our country, we're just not. I want to read him because we're going east. We're going to Russia, and I, I hoped to make the sig significance of that move somewhat clear this morning, but here's a poet. His name is um, uh, Miklos um, Radnodi. Um, he's Hungarian, and um, he died in the war. He was Jewish, and um, was forced into labor, and as these um, people had to move across the, the lands that they were covering doing the work for the Germans, when they became so emaciated that they couldn't stand up, they would be put in a ditch and left to die. <coughs> and that was true for him and some of his companions. So he died in, in those forced marches. But his poetry a body of his poetry has been recovered. So for the next couple of weeks I'm going to read just because we're going east into that into that mentality. Um, you know how much of an interest that is for me. That's why I did the movie um, Departures because I really wanted people to enter another culture because it, I, it helps to see more clearly what's good about our culture and what's not good when we set it against another one. Um, so this is um, Miklos Radnodi in a collection called The Foamy Sky, and this is the poem <coughs> that the title was taken from. It's called The Foamy Sky. Um, I'm going to read, <coughs> in the next couple of weeks, I'm just going to read some of his poetry to give you a sense, because he's so modern, so modern. He, um, and he belongs to a modern world in upheaval. Foamy Sky. The moon sways in a foamy sky, how strange that I'm alive. A bland, efficient death searches this age. Notice that word efficient. Think about technology and the efficiency that it embeds in us. Efficient death searches this age, and they turn white on whom it lays its hand. Sometime the year looks round and shrieks, looks round and faints away. What kind of autumn lies in wait, what winter dulled with agony to gray? The forest bled, and every hour in that revolving time bled too. The wind was scrawling numbers, huge, and darkening in the unsettled snow. I have seen certain things, such things that now the air feels dense as earth. A rustling, tepid silence holds me fast, as in that time before my birth. I come to a standstill by this trunk, it stirs its thick leaves angrily, reaches a branch down for my neck. Now I'm neither weak nor cowardly, just tired, unmoving. And the branch searches my hair, terrified, mute. Such things one must forget, but I have never yet been able to forget. Foam gushes forth upon the moon. A, a dark green venom streaks the sky. I roll myself a cigarette, and slowly, carefully, a living eye. That's this foamy venom and, the, and this strange changing relationship to nature. We've not seen anything like this in any ancient past because it's a technological age. Remember with the German tanks and artillery and smoke and gas <coughs> on a battlefield, it's almost as if um, man has released these putrid chemicals and it's they're penetrating, permeating nature, the sky, and they're becoming a part of the spiritual landscape. landscape. They're becoming like a tear, a force that's 
affecting men. We've entered into an industrial world, machines killing people. The next poem I'm going to read is going to be a poem describing one of his comrades dying and this German soldier over him speaking his words. I'll wait to. But anyway, I'm, I'm entering a, I'm, I'm reading some modern poetry just because so much of the poetry we've um, read is traditional and uh, because we're getting into a modern age. This is where we're going with Dostoevsky, so. Okay. Um, I've got a really difficult task this morning. Um, one of the most important things I want to do this morning is lay out a history, and I know that this is going to be um, really sketchy and abstract. I can't, I can't do better than that, so don't hold me on details. Some of you are going to know this far better than I do. Um, my purpose here is to lay out um, in broad strokes a history that brings us to Russia, because I think it's important to see that in order to appreciate what's going on in the work that Dostoevsky does. So in a minute I'm going to do that, but just know that it's going to be very general, but I think there's still some value in seeing it that way. Okay. Quickly to review. Last couple of weeks we read Murder in the Cathedral, what Eliot did in Murder in the Cathedral. Remember, he's the, one of the first moderns. So with Eliot, we have entered into the modern world. It's where we're going to be with Dostoevsky. But what Eliot did as a modern, remember he wrote the poems, Marina, <coughs> Song for Simeon. I told you that he wrote the poem, um, what do you have me now, Don? The maps and the characters. Oh. Um, he wrote the poem, The Wasteland, which some take as the, the mark, it's a signature poem of modernity. Because in that poem, Eliot's showing us the sterility of the modern city, that man has lost himself. Um, he knows that we're in a post-Christian age, we've lost our faith, so we've entered into a world completely different. I think the best way to say it is, um, the pagans didn't know Christ, but they knew the gods. The gods were everywhere in their world. You can't read a pagan work without finding the, the divine order at work in their life. The, the Middle Ages were Christian, Catholic. We come up to the time of the Reformation and the Scientific Revolution, and that marks the beginning of modernity, and we're in a changed world. For the most part, the Protestant worlds have <coughs> removed the sacraments. The sacramental world is gone, and science... Um, makes man a thing. He's a product of all these forces. Darwin, he's a, he's a product of all these blind forces. He has no free will. Um, the Protestant mind says man is depraved. He's lost his free will. He can even be determined. His outcome can be predetermined. So we enter a really dark world um, with the modern world, and Eliot's marking it. The one thing that can be said to make that clear is the pagans believed in God. The whole Middle Ages were largely Catholic. It was a Christian. It was a non-reflective Christianity. People weren't educated, but they held to a faith. When we enter the modern world, we enter a time in which a civilization that has known God openly rejects him. We have entered that world. We, we are living in a post-Christian world. So we're the first civilization to live after God offered himself to the world <coughs> to deny him. That's not a small thing. Okay? 
and it's going to be at the center of what's been Dostoevsky. What Eliot did in Murder of the Cathedral is take us back. He took us back to a martyrdom, located us in the central fact about Christianity, that we've been called to give up our lives. So each one of us to love others. So that's an important thing. And he knows he's speaking to an audience that no longer believes in Christians. I mean, it's, I mean a lot of the people had to be Christian in the audience. But he knows he's speaking to a non-Christian world. <coughs> and he's got to find a way to do it. He, 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 almost, he never, never explicitly deals with Christ in most of his poems. In this one, he doesn't, except through the character, the major character who's Beckett. Um, and you know at the end of the play... Um, he's doing something that calls attention to that fact because the play ends with the knights coming out and making a defense of what they just did and one of the knights saying we're doing what you wanted us to do I can't remember the you remember the words I should have brought the but um, um, what he was doing was implicating us saying um, your, your part you share responsibility for what we've done so the question that Eliot leaves us with is, are we? Now we've gone through the play, we saw how implicated the chorus was because there, the chorus comes to that point where it says, um, we um, consented. We consented. So they acknowledge they're implicated in the martyrdom. And their response is, pray, forgive us, forgive us, Thomas, forgive us, Becca. Pray for us, Becca. So they're asking for his prayers and Beckett's response is, um, I was the one chosen, not you. Be at peace, because not everybody's called to do this. So um, what one of the things he's doing in that play, particularly in that use of that phrase that we kept reading, the day, St. Stephen, the day, Christmas, the day, the Holy Innocence, the day, is to ask ourselves whether we really enter into the day aware that that day is linked in some timeless way to Christ's death and resurrection. So when a martyr dies, do we really enter, do we live with some sense participating in that day? So that we're living the day knowing that it's simultaneous with all these other days. It's this timeless moment, the still point. Remember he gave the image of the circle and at the edge the circle is moving really fast at the center, it's still. Do we enter into that still point, that quiet, when we're with God? Or are we caught up in the things of the world? And remember what the, the, speak, the, the priest's response to the Steve in the day and Christmas the day. The priests were going, what day is it today? What day? Um, I would, it's, it, it's embarrassing, you know, and it's the priest. Um, so there's this question that we're being left with at the end. Do we actually enter into that day, that still point where we're connected with the ongoing present of attorney, the day? And are we implicated? Um, and if we are, do we understand our place? Not to despair, because Thomas said to them, do not despair, be at peace. Um, the real question is, will we enter into the holy place where the blood has been spilt because that place is no longer the same? Or do we go as tourists? And I kept putting the question, I've asked it a number of times now. When we take the Eucharist, where are we? You know, when I'm, Right, I've asked this again and again the last few weeks. When we take, because you know, if we take the Eucharist into us, Christ is in us, which means we're in his kingdom. Frightening thing to do, I think. We're in his kingdom. 
when we got to the car, we were walking through the halls, and we just received the Eucharist. Are we with him? Where are we? It's that in-between state that I've been talking about recently, that they were here, but are we, are we also there? Um, that's the great theme of the four quartets, for those of you who remember it. In my beginning is my end. It's, it's neither here nor in England, or it's here in England and always, you know, those refrains that, that make us aware that there's this strange present that we're called to that opens on the presence of all of the time. So, Elliot's taking us back <coughs> and reaffirming, it, the, the play is really an affirmation of the Christian spirit, the martyrdom that all, that all of us are asked to share for. And I think be grateful for because of what the saints do. Because not all of us are called to be saints, and we all have sins. The sins weigh us all down, I'm assuming. Um, but um, are we glad, even with our sins, to, to be there, to work to be there, to, you know, to learn to be there more closely? Um, and a final word on, on Elliot. You remember that he was born in um, the United States, and he associated himself with his family with what was called the High Brahmins in Boston, the Boston Brahmins. It was this high class. Most of them were Unitarians. They belonged to that group of Unitarians. Ralph Waldo Emerson is the one most known for that. And that group of men who called themselves the Transcendentalists, um, Emerson, Thoreau, and even Jones Very was with them. We've read some of his poems before. Um, they laughed at Jones Very because he was a Quaker and believe that God's will determined everything. Um, the Unitarians did not believe in the Trinity, so they undermined Christ's place, that the way in which the divine entered human and took on a crucifixion. It was very intellectual. It appealed to intellectuals. He left that for precisely that reason. I mean, it's like a truncated religion. He went to England and converted, and his conversion takes time, took time at about the time of these poems that we've been reading, Marina, Song for Simeon, and Murder at the Cathedral. Those are the works we've done. And you know they're all about this in-between place. Um, some holy thing is taking place, and it brings together the familiar, everything is familiar, with something strange. And it's the presence of that something strange that leaves people in dread. So it's that condition where you're comfortable and at home, but you know you're on the edge of something. And it leaves you with a sense of fear that, and I suggested, you know, that's where we're supposed to live a lot of our life. If we're too comfortable and we're, you know, then are we really living in the mystery that's part of our life? And that's so characteristic of our modern world. So those were some of the themes. That, and, and I just want to underline, to call attention to that one theme that was so important. This is the day, Stephen the day, Christmas the day. He says nothing about it. That's what's so beautiful about what he, he makes no statement, none. There's no predication. It doesn't say the day did this or the day was. It just says Stephen the day, Christmas the day, the holy innocence the day. That's it. This is, it's like syntactically, you've got to hear this because this is what Eliot did as a difficult poet. Syntactically, his, his language is doing is a, is a rendering of the in-between state that I'm talking about. Can you find words for it? 
Is it empirically there so you can describe it? You'll follow me. He doesn't predicate it. There's no statement about it. He says, Stephen the day. Christmas the day. He says nothing. We either, it's, there, there's the apophatic again, <clears throat> we're talking about the apophatic. We, we know by what's not there. And what's not there is a mystery. How, how, how capable are we with language to get? And if we do use language, will we reduce it? Will we shrink it? Not intending, but... So the very way he uses syntax asks of us to see what's not there. Stephen the day, Christmas the day, Holy Innocence the day. So the language... I mean, lots of people will read over that and go, what the hell is he doing? Write a sentence, would you? You know? <laughs> Y'all are following. But that's exactly what he's doing. He's asking us to get out of that through language. Um, it's one of the extraordinary things he did. He worked with the apophatic. He, you know, it's a part of what we've been talking about for long. So he's doing lots of extraordinary things. So that's the world we just left, and now we're going to go to Dostoevsky. Okay? So... Um, Dostoevsky. Um, he was born in November 1821. He died in February 1881, so he lived exactly, almost exactly 60 years. He died when he was 60 years old. He's known as one of the great existential novelists of the modern world. In some ways, he, he's thought to be one of the great um, precursors of modern psychology. And I'm saying that with no exaggeration. When you read his books, you can't read him without realizing that you go into the psyche of these people in an extraordinary way. You, you, you get to know their inward secret selves. And, and the world that he reveals there is disturbing because he's showing, um, I can't find the word, I don't like depravity. He's showing how disordered we are underneath our surfaces. Um, that all these passions wreak havoc on people's souls. The interesting thing that he does, though, and I want to make this clear, be because of the way he presents a, a large Russia, a whole Russian world, at the same time, we learn to see that the Russian world that the characters are engaging with are a product of men themselves. That, that Russian culture didn't come out of nowhere. It's a product of men. Um, so they created it, and they're having to respond to some of its evils, some of its disorders. So we're seeing a reciprocal relationship between characters and what's going on with them, seemingly autonomously, while we're aware that they're reacting to the world that they're partly responsible for. So in my mind, he's doing something I don't think Freud did as well. Freud tried to go into the interior and he showed, I mean, he, he said, all of us are virtually depraved. We all have this Oedipus conflict. We want to kill our fathers and sleep with our mothers. That's, that's, a, that's determined for him. That's fixed in everybody. And he also thought that all of us were, um, had this, what he called this polymorphous perverse instinct, that we were driven by these sexual desires and they could take any form. Um, those are things that determine us. They're fixed. Um, what Dostoevsky does, I think, is show that our, under, our underworld, our unconscious, is far richer and vaster. And unlike Freud, 
Dostoevsky knew that there was a spiritual unconscious, not just the animal. Freud has no sense of that. To go to that means you go to God. God is doing something in your life. Um, so what Dostoevsky is doing is, is sh um, showing us the, the depths of something approaching depravity, the, the ugliness that humans are capable of doing. And I want to get to why in a minute, because I, I, the, lots of poets have been doing this, but I think there's something important going on here that's relevant to us. Um, this is a reason for taking the, the time that I'm going to take to go into the history. So he's, he's certainly one of the greatest novelists of our time. He wrote um, Poor Folk, um, 1844-45, Notes from the Underground, 1864, which some take to be the classical work on um, existentialism. It's, it's written from the point of view of a person who's like an underground person. He has no place in the world. So it's through him and his experiences that um, the disorders of a political world are being revealed. Crime and Punishment in 1866. By the way, that's a book we could do. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, we, I, I, we, I didn't include it, but it's a book we could do together. Um, if we're going to do a book together, I want to do The Demons with you guys. Because <laughs> you know how dark I am, so um, I would love to do The Demons. Some, some of you may want to stay away from that or get a blessing before you come to class. <laughs> and and the, um, Brothers Karamon's 1880, the year before he died. Um, those are his great works. We're doing The Brothers, which I think is his greatest work. But a couple of things that you should know. One is that Dostoevsky had a gambling addiction all his life. It began after high school, and he, he had that addiction up until, I think, about 10 years till the end of his life. So it, it, it put his family in debt numerous times. His wife had to struggle to, because it affected their family. I mean, he, he borrowed and lost money. He put his family in debt. When he took um, tours to Europe, um, when he was becoming well-known as a writer, the debt got really serious. Um, his wife had to struggle in, enorm in enormous ways to try to help. Um, she was faithful their whole life, but that was an addiction. I believe, I personally believe, that he, I know this is going to probably sound sick in some ways, but I believe that one of the reasons he could go to the depths that he did in the way he treats characters is because he was a, I think he was a brilliant man. He, he just... He was well learned. He he saw human. He saw the human character, and he had a language capable of showing it. But he also had this extraordinary sensitivity to the these dark energies at work in the human soul. I don't think he could have shown them. And and I'm going to say with the hope that he did, because I think this is one of the most hopeful books of the 20th century. It's full of dark things, but its ultimate message is hopeful, absolutely hopeful. He could not have dealt with those dark things if he hadn't learned to see them in himself. That suffering from an addiction and knowing the sins of it and its effect, particularly on the people he loved, um, was the weight I think he carried all of his life. That's one thing to know that I think affected his writing. The second is this, and it's really important. Um, during the revolutions in Europe, 1848 or so, um, Russia was a close to revolutions. The czars were being threatened. Um, there was talk about revolution everywhere. Um, they were all over Europe. And Dostoevsky was a, involved with a group of literary people. I think it was called the Belinsky Circle, if I remember. And 
they were, they were reading revolutionary works. Remember, the French Revolution had already taken place, the American Revolution had already taken place. Democracy was accepted that that was the way of the world. The old the czarist regime, the monarchical regimes in Europe were crumbling. Um, England made a compromise, um, which I think they still suffer from. But, um, but this group of people, literary people, they weren't revolutionaries, but they met. And it was discovered, and Dostoevsky was arrested and accused of treason. And he was called before a firing squad, along with the other people who were accused of treason um, to overthrow the government. They were lined up in threes. Um, Czar, I think it was, I think it was, I think it was Tsar Alexander II. I'm not sure if I, I think it was Alexander II, had already commuted the sentence. Dostoevsky didn't know it. So the men were marched out, put against a wall, the guns are raised, and suddenly um, there's a shout that the sentence has been commuted. So Dostoevsky went through an experience in, in prison while he was there, knowing that he was going to be executed. And you can imagine what would go through anybody's mind if you were in prison, knowing three days from now you're going to die. Two days from now you're going to die. A day from now you're going to die. Mm. Two hours from now. I mean, how are you eating during that period? Or what's, you know... An hour from now, five minutes from now, you're being let out. He's let out, set up, and suddenly... So right at the moment when the guns are going to go off and he's expecting to die, how much of his life passes before... What has been going on for the last period up to that moment, everything is intensified. And we know he was, he was sent to forced labor for, I think, four years when the, when the sentence was commuted. And from the... The notes that we have, Dostoevsky went through the prison cells with the men, reading the Gospels, <coughs> calling them to Christ, encouraging them to have faith. So he was a deeply religious man, deeply religious, faced evils in himself, jurisdiction, and death. For him to have his life back could not have been a small thing for him. So the Dostoevsky that comes out of that is the one that goes on to write The Poor Folk, which is about... The, the peasant class, you know, in Russia, and, and then the other great novels. Um, in 1621, sorry, eight, eight. 1861, the um, the serfs are freed. It's the emancipation of the serfs. Um, but I want to come back to that. So that's um, Dostoevsky's born into that world. Now, I, I want to do this brief history. And just bear with me because of its sketchiness. Um, but I want everybody to have this. Because I don't think we're going to see um, the brothers very well if we don't. Okay. Dostoevsky lived at a time when traditional Russia was at being absolutely torn up. And I'm going to say, in a way, that without knowing it, was pointing towards communism, the modern world. They don't know that then, but it seems to me if you see what's going on, in a way that I hope to make clear in a minute, you'll be left with the same kind of question, that, that without knowing that the changes that were being made would leave um, Russia in an absolutely um, helpless condition, ready for modern state ideologies to work there have their influence. That was, it will be communism, was the modern ideologies and what it did to form Russia. 
he's writing at a time of that transition. Some, they've left behind the old world, they don't know quite what they're doing, but they've entered into the world of the modern state. Okay, now let me go back. Um, I want to I want to raise this question. Sorry, this is going to be more of a history thing, that, but but it'll 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 be relevant. So, um, I want to ask this question: What is Europe? What is Europe? Because Russia did everything it could to model itself on Europe at a time when Europe was in the throes of radical changes. But it's impossible to, un to understand that without asking this, without, I mean, understanding what went on then without asking that, what is Europe? What is Europe? Okay. So bear with me for a bit, okay, you guys? Um, I'm going to go back to Homer in a minute. This is what Herodotus says, who lived in 5th century Greece. If you know anything about ancient Greece, you know that the two great historians were Herodotus and Thucydides. Thucydides is the one who wrote on the Peloponnesian War, the war between Sparta and Athens, which is major because it's about two parts of the soul. Democratic Athens, aristocratic Sparta. It's very much about two different spirits in the soul and which regime is going to dominate. Um, and we know from our reading, if you guys go back to Chaucer, anything we've been doing, that the Thebians, the, the noble-souled cities, are the, are the worst. They, they create habit. That the democratic city is the one closest to our nature. Aristotle said that, Plato, all the poets said that. In fact, Aeschylus is about the coming into being of Athens, the creation of this democratic city. Herodotus says this about what Europe was. For Asia, with all the various tribes of barbarians that inhabit it, is regarded by the Persians as their own, but Europe and the Greek race they took on as, a dis as distinct and separate. I'll repeat it. For Asia, with all the various tribes and barbarians that inhabit it, is regarded by the Persians as their own, but Europe and the Greek race they look on as distinct and separate. So I want to think about Europe not as something defined by geographic boundaries, clearly, although that's important. That's a product of modern rationalistic states. Okay? Europe was united in some way. The bar Asia was thought of as the barbarians, this mixed tribe. And for a minute, go back to the Iliad and the Odyssey and the Aeneid. That's where we're going. There are lots of people who look at the Iliad as a poem about force. We've talked about it, those of you who have been here. My argument was that it's not about force, it's about the emergence of the Logos. It's the Logos that gives purpose and direction and curbs the tendency in men to use force. That was the central action of the Aeneid. All the men have been killing each other by force for nine and a half years. Achilles withdraws from the war. What drives the men in that battle is their love of honor. How is honor shown? By the gifts conferred on you. You defeat somebody, you take his booty, they're yours. The king gets more booty than anybody. You know that the opening quarrel is about booty, money, wealth. If honor's conferred by possessions, that we, those of you, if honor's conferred by possessions, it can be taken away. And if it's taken away, who are we? Who are we then? 
That's fundamentally what drives the Iliad. They've been fighting for booty to acquire honor, to answer the injustice done by Paris, and all the booty. We know that if Achilles didn't withdraw from that war, that war would go on for another in it. And the cost of it is once he withdraws from that war, all of his own men die because he's not in the war. And then late in the battle, you know, he comes back and says, I let everybody down. He goes back in. The, the new shield is made, marking a new identity. He goes back into the well, Nobody can touch him. So there are two important moments. Ninth book, Agamemnon sends embassies offering cities, women, mountains of booty. And Achilles' response is, such honor is a thing I need not. I think I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. That is, he's begun to understand that there's something greater than the material wealth, wealth that we acquire. That insofar as we depend on material wealth, wealth we're susceptible to losing it. Christ said it. Let your treasure's not a, you, we're not going to take us, it with us. If that's our life, we're not taking much into the afterworld. So. so a new sense of the human individual emerges. This logos, the gods, constantly interacting with men, and what, it, what they help Achilles come to. That honor is this, the human person has this intrinsic dignity. It can't be determined by social valuations, material things that God gave us. Think about abortion. To me, it's, I mean, it's the most, you know, I mean, those of you who've done the Iliad with me, that I think the Iliad is one of the most beautiful critiques of modern America that's ever been written. That's 2,000 years before America was created. Um, that, that everything we strive for today is material wealth, comfort, prestige, honor, all those things. And if we lose them, we commit suicide. I mean, who are we then? So, so what emerges in the Iliad is the sense that there's this inherent dignity. Abortion is one of the marks of it. You know, that, that a child is a thing. I mean, that's, that's in one sense a measure of how materialistic we become, that the cost of it is that. So it, I argue this from the, the Iliad is a founding work of Western civilization. It shows that what an extraordinary thing the human person is if we only somehow saw it or accepted it or, you know, allowed for it. The Odyssey is about um, a new view of marriage. During the war, the, the homes back in Ithaca are in collapse. Penelope is being set on by a hundred suitors. Take the men out of the picture, what happens? The men have been away for 20 years. When a man's away from home, what's going to happen to the kids? I mean, it's a universal problem in America. Where are the men? I can't, I can't think about, sorry, I can't think about abortion without one. Where in the hell are the men? It, it's left to women like this? Um, what happens between a man and a woman doesn't happen with a woman alone. She can be pregnant. Where are the men? So in the Odyssey, Odysseus or Homer's exploring the nature of marriage. <coughs> and if those of you who've done it remember the two um, contexts for marriage are Nestor's marriage and Menelaus's marriage in the beginning. But then it, it's about Odysseus struggling with all these metaphysical things that he has to learn before he can get home if he's to have the right relationship with his wife that he should. That's what the Odyssey's about. So Iliad, the individual. The Odyssey, marriage that those are fundamental to our civilization. Remember that the Iliad is about Kleos, honor, and the, the, the Odyssey is about Nostos, 
from which we get nostalgia, a longing for home, nostos, to go home. And those of you who have read Dante will know it. Where's Dante going? What's he want to get to? Home. Except that it's interesting because in, in, in Homer it's home in our material, earthly sense. For Dante it's home in our metaphysical sense, that we came from God. The thing that all of us long for is to return to him, to go home, to come home. The, so nostos is one of the principal words of the Odyssey. The other is um, economia, from which we get economy. Economia in the Greek, ekonomos, nomos, rule, rule of the household. Homer would look at our understanding of economy and today and laugh. Economy doesn't mean just running the finances. Economy means the rule of the household. Odysseus will not get home until he learns to rule himself. That is, he, he won't be to his wife everything that he's given to be until he becomes a lawful man himself. He has to learn about his nature. And he faces all those mythic creatures, you know, that teach him about himself. And remember, um, because I've made this, if the, or if the Iliad's about the way in which men take women for granted, they're, remember, they're the highest form of booty in the Iliad. The Odyssey is about the way in which women take men for granted, so the women don't get off here. Um, what, what he does is really pull back the veil on women to show the way they use men. If you remember, so many of the creatures that Odysseus meets in, the, in his travels are feminine. And the two major, Calypso and Circe, Calypso has him for eight years, Circe has him for one. Circe's an image of that in woman that excites a man sexually. Calypso is that which awakens a man, his longing for a transcendent <coughs> beauty, which is imaged in woman. So of the nine and a half years that he's gone, nine of those years, he's under the control of women. He's got to get free if he's going to be the husband he has to be. So both of them are about these quests to, f to find out who the human person is, um, existentially, <laughs> however you want to call it, and how important marriage is for the continuity of our civilization. So Europe, I'm going to ask, I mean, um, Herodotus says, you know, it's this place of unity set off against the, the barbarian tribes. If you remember the Iliad, the third book of the Iliad, it opens with Homer describing the Trojans and um, Anakians coming into battle again. The Trojans are described as coming in like wild fowl, screaming and yelling in different languages because they come from all over the place to benefit from the booty that... Um, Troy has, because remember, Troy's uh, an ocean or a, um, the edge of the, it's a seaport city. Um, it's in the western, northwestern edge of Turkey. So they're wealthy. All these people have come to help. It's like wildfowl, you know, all these, these barbarian tribes wanting to benefit from it. The Trojan, or the Achaeans are described as being quiet and together, not steeled in their resolve to, so two very different images of your, the West and Asia. Um, in Virgil, you know that the image of the city comes into focus, that the whole point of the Aeneid is, is um, founding Rome. Aeneas has to give up his land, Troy's destroyed, 
and move west and he has to follow the gods and he's going to found this universal city and what he what we learn is he experienced all these dying cities they're all dying <coughs> he can't found a city without overcoming all the battles in Italy because the nobles are telling tearing themselves apart just as in England you look, go back to England's history he has to fight them and bring a unity and once he does Rome will be founded Rome will be the universal city. If those of you read it, remember the image of Carthage, the logo for Carthage was the war horse. Noble, powerful, above things. The logos for Rome, do you remember what it was? Time for a quiz. <laughs> it was the sow with her 30 piglets. Very maternal, very lowly. So the image from Rome, the image of most of the ancient cities, which were wrecking havoc, that's what the whole Greek world taught us, the whole push towards democracy is to make a city in which everybody could be, not just the noble, not just the highborn. Because remember when we did Chaucer, Theseus defeated Thebes, because Thebes was at war, they were killing it. Um, um, Arcide and Palamon, the two warriors who were survived, were ready to kill each other. Thebes was the noble city. Athens was the city for all men, for the ordinary, for what's ordinary and good. So Rome is the Rome is the one that gives us an image of the universal's timeless, eternal city, and that's just before Christ comes. Now, how's that for prophetic movements? <laughs> Every one of those points towards Christ. But my, the point I want to make here is something is growing in Europe, defining Europe as a place. It's in Europe. It, remember, in the empire, the individual never emerges. Right? You've got a million people working on the pyramids or the wall of China. Is, an, is one individual ever named? The tribe, the, the individual comes into existence, but he lives at a level, a level of necessity. It's only in the polis, in what emerged in Greece, where the human being can finally become what he's potentially given to be. The fullest image of that in the Greek world is Achilles, Odysseus, Socrates. Um, I hope you all remember the Iliad, because once Achilles makes that turn, once he admits his fault, and he loses the shield the that, he, that he got from his mom, his mother, that familial tie, once he breaks free, he emerges as this. And Aristotle said, the, the polis is greater and prior to the individual and the family. Because the danger is if you ever let the family become everything, it becomes enabling. We were meant to finally step out of the family, like Christ. Even Christ warns us. So the, the two severest dangers for Christ are the religious leaders and families. Remember, if, if a mother, and I don't remember how he put it, if a mother and father loved, me loved their family before me or so, I can't remember, but... He warns about, says the man come to me, and the guy says, let me bury my father. That is, I want to go back and take care of him. Christ said, let the dead bury. He's so aware of the dangers of the family that once they become everything, it can become enabling. It can keep the person from growing into who he's been given to be. So it's in Europe that we have this new sense of who the human person is, that he has this divine aspect, that he can only become himself fully when he works with the gods, does something with the gods. Um, okay, that's, that's Homer and Virgil. Yeah? Virgil is the one who gives us the image of Rome 
and that's just before Christ comes into the world. So it's extraordinary if you watch what's happening here. And um, Rome becomes the seat of the Western Empire. In 1330, um, Constantine comes in, and he moves the seat of the empire to the north, to Byzantine, and names the capital city. This is in, in Byzantium now, Constantinople. That becomes the center of power, and the language spoken there is Greek. So we know that during those years, from about 330 for the next several centuries, there are going to be all these tensions between the Latin world, Catholic, and Byzantium, Constantinople, which is largely Greek. And if you remember what we talked about when we did uh, Boethius, Boethius is caught up in that quarrel. He's accused, because there are rivalries between those two centers, he's accused of wanting to um, assassinate his king unjustly, and he's executed. And you know that most of the um, most of the heresies come out of the east. Um, so there are serious tensions, um, doctrinally, culturally, political, between those two two centers. When we did Dante, we went through all of this. Um, Galatius wrote that letter where he said there are two two swords, two powers. One the soul, one the body. One belongs to Christ. One belongs to Caesar. So the, the, the authority of the church is higher than the authority of Caesar. So in worldly terms, we're supposed to obey Caesar, but with respect to our ultimate end, we're supposed to obey God. And you know that the great conflict in the Middle Ages was the intertwining of those two powers, that the church took on a political character, that the state took on a religious character, and sorting themselves out was the great struggle, the great accomplishment of the medieval church. In the 7th century, Islam cuts Europe in half, and in the 9th century, Charlemagne, who's the king of the Franks, French then, um, was made the king of the Lombards, and he unites Europe for the first time um, since the 4th century. Europe becomes a united place, um, and that unity of Europe remains in place until the 15th century, in 1454, when the Turks conquer Constantinople, and it becomes an eastern power. I just, I want you to think about this just for a second. So the center of gravity of Europe, not just by rational boundaries, but by cultural identity. Is that distinction clear? Mm -hmm. in, in, we define ourselves in the one, here's the city of, like um, 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 Jefferson City in Faulkner. Here's the city boundaries. Here's the city sign saying city boundaries, you know. There are, there are actual physical boundaries but there's still a cultural notion. Is that okay? Let me, let me, because I want to take a minute with that. I, this is taking off a little bit from Aristotle, but I think it's faithful to him. So po political boundary, or the polis just cannot mean physical boundaries. It's, it's a concept of a community. If it is, it, it means the individual only comes to his identity through the help of others. It won't happen in the tribe as well. It won't happen in the empire as well. It's in the polis that the individual really emerges. And according to Aristotle, he said, it's only when a community reaches a point where division of labor becomes an established principle that that happens. Because once there's a division of labor, a guy makes shoes, another guy makes houses, another guy makes boats. Once they divide that labor, they don't have to do everything and they're not at a level of necessity like people in a tribe. Once they do that, time begins to open up for them. How important is that? Why is that important for Aristotle? 
A freedom is given to you to do something you can't do at a level of necessity and you can't do in the empire. Because in the empire, the state owns you. In a tribe, you're bound by the bloodline, the family, and the level of necessity. What, why is that freedom, that time, so important for Aristotle and Plato? You all know this. Because, be, because once that division of labor takes place and people are freed, they have time to philosophize, to study, to write, to create. And some part of man comes into existence then that wouldn't when he's at a level of necessity or under the state. So you can see how crucial that is. That means, is everybody following? That means that at that point, the polis can't just mean the physical boundaries of a city, Athens. It also means the way in which people in that community are related to others in time outside those boundaries. So for example, if you were born today in a city, today, and uh, you're in a part of a church, you have the support of that church because of the health that... We know when, as we mature, we become aware of all the people who helped us along the way to help us become what we are. That we could have never done it alone by ourselves. N impossible. Right? We, the work we do together helps to fill us out, to attain a wholeness. We also know that we can't attain that wholeness without the help of people who became before. So the boundaries just are geographic, they're in time. So anybody in this community who were, who were to read, anybody in this community who is to read Homer, there it is. Anybody in this community who is to read Virgil or St. Thomas or Boethius grows into himself in a way that wouldn't be true without them. So the notion of this poleness is this community existing over time that helps a person attain his full his wholeness. In the Catholic Church, holy. That we become whole. We know that it can't be possible without God. Okay? Um, and we know anybody who attains that degree of wholeness, whoever that person is, knows he can't have that wholeness, however you define it, without carrying in him, having as a part of him, his own existence, all these other people, all these other works. So that's Europe. That's what distinguishes Europe. It's what sets us apart, this love of freedom and learning and tradition and this, these, the importance of the individual. Is that going to be true in China? Mm -mm. Africa? Egypt? No. Everybody's following. So this notion of Europe isn't just geographical. It is. Um, but it also involves a time outside of its boundaries. This, the importance of the tradition. All that we've been doing together, this wonderful work that I do. So, so what happens? So that unity, wait, let me stop. Any questions about this so far? Everybody's clear. What happens at this moment is extraordinary. 1454, the Turks conquer Constantinople and um, an Islamic culture comes in, which is a serious culture, but um, the European culture has moved towards Asia, in the direction of Asia, and in the next century or two after that, it's picked up by Moscow, and Moscow thinks of itself as the new Rome. It's the imperial center. Um, the czars call them czar, which means 
Caesar, the leader. They're the new Caesar. The seat of empire has gone from Rome in its collapse. It did collapse. The seat of power was Constantinople for centuries. That's why there were such struggles between the, between the Latin and Greek world. Those struggles continued into the 10th century when the filioque, the schism between the churches took place. So the center moved from Rome to Constantinople, now to Moscow. And that's where we are now. Now what happens now is extraordinary because um, when Peter comes in, um, um, Yeah. Um, he's born in 1617 to 1725. Just think of the age. 1725 is a, is roughly the time of the Civil War in England. Those of you who've done Milton and, and um, Dante remember Milton is involved in the Civil War between the Presbyterians and the Anglicans and the Cavaliers, the Royalists, and 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 it's gonna it's gonna tear England apart. It's gonna change England forever. So while that's going on, Peter is in Russia. Okay, and um, Peter's got ambitions on Turkey and for Finland to the north. And um, he's defeated in both battles in his efforts to increase his power. When he's defeated, he's so embarrassed that he goes west and he goes on these long journeys. He visits every capital in Europe practically, talks to all the heads of states, and he learns about the technology of everything going on and is amazed. He's particularly fascinated, I think it was with Spain or England in their ship, because he wanted to build a navy that was capable of doing what he wanted to do. So he brought back all this learning. Here's, here's where all of this is going. Peter the Great brought back this learning and wanted to change Russia and bring it into the modern world. So what he did was artificially ask, reconstruct Russia. He created all these provinces, what he called colleges, made presidents, it's each one, with their own officers, and made every one of them accountable to him. In 1861, the serfs are freed. It was a democratic act. It was disastrous. Serfs had no work, no money. They had to pay their landlords because then they had to rent when they had no money. The landlords, because they lost the labor of the serfs, lost their money. So a whole culture began to collapse. So in, in mid-19th century, we're, we're on Russia now, in which Europe is beginning to play an influence. Russia's in the middle of a collapse. An old way of life is being uprooted, absolutely uprooted. Um, the, the serfs, because they're now surrounded by the, the upper class and the wealth and everything's being changed, long to be identified with the upper class. So you can't read Dostoevsky without finding all these people making these literary illusions to people who've educated, who've gone to Europe. They're constantly using quotes, passages from works. You can't read five pages and, and not hear somebody making a quote in French or German or... So you've got, a, you've got a, a culture in the midst of a spiritual crisis. It's lost its roots. It's being turned into an artificial city. Now stop and think about this in this way for the moment. Europe has always grown organically in time, philosophy emerged. And when Christ came into the world, the early church fathers adapted the Platonic and Aristotelian traditions and realized how much support they gave. They're all pointing towards the Logos. So there's this amazing compatibility between philosophy and religion. In Islam, that's not so. 
when the Islam writers discover the ancient texts and love them, Plato and Aristotle, somebody like um, Maimonides, or uh, sorry, Averroes, they're so fascinated that they develop this philosophy, and, but it doesn't accord with their religious beliefs. They're incompatible. So the philosophers come up with what they call a, the second truth. The Islamic leaders were horrified. They wanted to get rid of it, you know, um, censor it, and actually punish people who held to those beliefs because they undermined Islam, Allah. So Islam came up with two truths. It was buried because religion and philosophy were incompatible. In the West, that's not so. Everything that Plato and Aristotle wrote was compatible with Christianity. It opened on it in amazing ways. We've talked about it over our years together. So they develop organically. What we come to in the Magna Carta is a product of things that had come before. What came out of the Civil War in England that we've talked about led to the democracy in America. We, we put that disestablishment clause in our Constitution because all of the wars in, in England were about the Anglicans wanting to force the Presbyterians to follow their religious beliefs, the Presbyterians wanting to get into power because they thought the Anglicans didn't take the reforms. I mean, the whole Reformation power is out of control. People trying to use political power to force another religious group to, the pure, the, you know the Catholics were driven underground, the Puritans had to flee. They went to the Netherlands, to America. <clears throat> Some years after our founding, we did that with Scarlet Letter. Constitution is made, disestablishment clause. So the modern state begins to assume a different kind of character. And as you watch the modern state develop over the world, it tends to be absolute in its powers. Political correctness is one of the effects of it. If you do this, if you believe in religion, if you hold on to these beliefs, you're bigoted, you're dogmatic, you belong to a backward world. You're not progressive. I'm assuming everybody's hearing. You can't, for the last couple of years, there's no way you can hear any kind of discussion, if that's what you're going to call it, without somebody saying, bigoted, backwards, religion, get rid of it. The modern state, the utopian state, is the answer to all these fights and bigotries. That's been going on for centuries. We're in the modern world in which the state takes on all these powers increasingly loses its connection, its roots in, the, in God. That's where Russia is at this time. Peter comes in and he tries to change everything and it sets up all of these dislocations. Um, so, um, and one of the products of it, which is, I just think, it's beautifully rendered, um, is that Fyodor um, Karamazov, the father, is called the old man. You ought to be familiar with that term from Christianity because every one of the, every one of us is called the old man. We look, all of us are caught by the fall. It's the old Adam, we all carry it. The sensuality, the selfishness, the lusts. I remember C.S. Lewis said one, I just was, I mean, so good of him to say, talking about this stuff. He says, whenever he looks inside of himself, I mean, he goes, he's a, he's a, he's a Christian apologist, one of the best in the 20th century, says whenever I look inside myself, all I discover is a, is a riot of lusts. That's C.S. Lewis. So when we look inside of ourselves, why else do we go to confession? When we look inside of ourselves, it's not a pretty thing to see. Um, Theodore belongs to that world. He's a sensualist. He identifies with it. His three sons are products of these dislocations that I'm describing. Um, Dimitri 
think he's the first child. He's a cast back to that old world. He's a soldier. He's an Achilles type. He's like his father. He's ready to fight for anything. All of his lusts are set in motion in, in, the, in the difficulties having in trying to decide between going with Grushenka or Katerina. Ivan is a modern skeptic. He doesn't believe in God. He doesn't believe in anything. He's going to be one of the central figures. He represents a real aspect of Russian life. Except that he's not a... He can't just leave it as a type. Even though he is a type, he's so fully realized as an individual person. Dmitri is the holy one. He's the last one. I mean, sorry, Alyosha. Sorry, sorry. Alyosha is the holy one. Part of his life has been raised by Father Zosima, who's a holy man. He loves him. The one person who brings Christ to everything he does most fully is Alyosha. So we're watching these, this family emerge, carrying all these dislocations, and showing us visibly what's actually at stake, what's actually happening. And it's produced what we call today the deracinated, deracinated man, uprooted. That every one of us in the modern world is uprooted. The traditions on which our families are raised or our families before them, gone. The, wait one sec. Um, so we've, we've emerged in a, a world, and even, and, and I'm going to say, in reading Dostoevsky, I'm going to make this claim, you may disagree as we move along. I'm going to say, in reading Dostoevsky, we're really, really, in some sense, reading about America. We're watching the same struggles, trying to hold on to a religious belief when it's outdated. Um, what, sorry, Dave, give me one minute. Um, in uh, Moby Dick and Scarlet Letter, which we've read together, we saw the same thing. Ishmael's responding to a collapse in that Protestant culture. We've talked about it. Melville, or Hawthorne, is doing the same thing in Scarlet Letter. We've talked about it. The interesting thing about every one of those, both of those books, is that they're dealing with allegorical types. You never see the shipmen on the Pequod, engaging in a dialogue. Never. The shipmen are a class. The, everything that takes place is either in Ishmael or, or Ahab. And it's, what, listen to this, so all the tragic problems are pushed off onto Ahab. He's this titanic figure who represents the suffering that has to be answered. Ishmael enters into that quest, but he pulls out of it, and he represents the ordinary man. He loves ordinary things. Every one of his chapters is a reflection about the goodness of something. But we never see a dialogue. In Scarlet Letter, in the opening, we've got an image of um, Anne Hutchinson being e exiled, cast out because of her belief in the Holy Spirit, and all the other Protestants uh, who believe that it's only if you conform to the church that you really saved, you, you almost never see any real discussion going on. Go into Dostoevsky's world, you cannot read a character without seeing him discussing something else in terms that reflect this fracturing. One of the characters will be progressive, rationalizing, constantly giving reason. I'm thinking of a scene I read yesterday when um, the father, uh, Fyodor, is going nuts again, and Alyosha has just met with uh, Katrina, to Katrina women, and the older one believes that um, Katrina loves Ivan and not Dmitri when everybody else thinks that Katrina is going to love Dmitri. And, and Ivan responds 
um, when she asks him to tell the truth about her. If you read his response, you're going to see a modern Freudian rationalist describing her passions. That could have never happened a hundred years ago. We don't see, is everybody following? We don't see that kind of discussion going on in Melville or Hawthorne. They're too allegorical. They're living in abstractions. When we get to Dostoevsky, we're in everybody's heart and mind. The discussions that are going on describe all these dislocations. You'll either see somebody very pious, like Father Zosimo, or somebody very progressive, intellectualizing everything. So that when Piotr, when Ivan describes Katrina and her passions, her love, he's giving her a rational analysis that Katrina, a hundred years ago or a hundred years before, could have never had. Because nobody would have had that thought. We're watching a modern rationalistic world. Now remember, in the West, religion and philosophy have always been together. Faith and reason. It's been a defining mark of the Western tradition. In the East, the rational tradition has almost no existence. It's an old pious religious that has not the support of a philosophy the way the West did, suddenly coming in, thrust into the modern world. Because Peter is bringing all of these Western influences back and imposing them. And lots of the wealthy people are going to Europe out of pretensions to be cultivated, you know, to be educated, and then return. So we're in a, a, a Russia that's in the midst of this horrible spiritual upheaval. It does not have the historical background or support that the West does, America. And it's for that reason that I'm saying, if we're watching it, it's easy to see how we get from mid-19th century to two generations later, communism. We're in the modern state. is not there but he's certainly aware of where they're going. So we're getting Russia at a time of crisis, and I believe that crisis corresponds to our own, because it's going on in our culture right now. I mean, you can disagree with that, but it seems to me it's a mirror. So that's, that's where we're going. I want to read a passage from the opening page just to give an example of something, and then we'll stop for today. David, I'm sorry, did you have something? Well, it's, it's sort of trivial, but their names, um, since I'm not up to Russian first names, they. They had the same middle name as their father's name. <laughs> is that is that what it is? Is a middle name? Yeah, it's like the Greek world. If you remember the Greeks, the Greeks did that with their names too. You, you couldn't separate a person, an angel, from his patrimony, his past, or his family name. It's, they hold on to the traditions. You carry them forward. Except right now, I mean, they're just being shattered. But this is our Russia. I just want you to have some sense that you've had this Russian world isolated from Europe. Europe has had this long history. It, it, it resulted in America. We, we broke off from Europe and became an independent. It represents um, the fruit of Europe, but something distinct. We are really distinct. And we represent a movement in the direction of the modern state. Part of what's behind our constant crises we have. Russia's in a similar situation, but it didn't have our history behind it. it um, you know, in the 15th century, when those European um, influences move into Asia, Moscow sees itself at the center of the world. And then, I think you know that, I don't know if I said that, but Peter moved the center of the uh, nation from Moscow to St. Petersburg. He created this artificial city. 
It's, it's, a, it's a product of man's technical powers, not the result of an organic growth in history. And so in some sense it images the way in which reason has become artificial and the way it can disrupt, uproot traditions and it's produced what we know in our, our world as the deracinated man. Faulkner deals with the, the, the book Ashland, or Absalom Absalom is about this character who wants to come into the South. This is after the Civil War and South is devastated. He wants to come into the South and build an empire. And there's nothing but tragic consequences from it because he's in his head. The modern man lives in his head. He wants to dissociate himself from the past. The past is bad. It's full of religious conflicts. These damn Catholics and Protestants would stop fighting. We might have, you know, it's, um, we, um, it's produced a strange, we're all, it's all us. I mean, I'm assuming all of us, are, you can't read the, you can't experience the news today without feeling a utopian world and traditional worlds with no meeting ground. There's no meeting ground. Here, let me read one short passage and we'll, we'll stop. If you turn to the very beginning, first page. Next time we meet, I'd like to try to cover a good bit of the first book, the whole first book. This is just a, a brief few lines from the very first page, because it's already a good illustration of what I'm talking about. First page. He was married twice and had three sons, the eldest Dmitry Fyodorovich by his first wife, and the other two, Ivan and Alexei, by his second. Fyodor Pavlovich's first wife belonged to a rather wealthy aristocratic family, the Miyasovs, also landowners in our district. That's the Piotr, the guy who visits the monastery um, with um, Fyodor. Precisely how it happened that a girl with a dowry, a beautiful girl too, and moreover one of those perk intelligent girls, not uncommon in this generation, but sometimes also to be found in the last could have married such a worthless runt, as everybody used to call him. I cannot begin to explain, but then I once knew a young lady, still of the last romantic generation, who after several years of enigmatic love for a certain gentleman, whom by the way she could have married quite easily at any moment, ended up after inventing, inventing all sorts of insurmountable obstacles by throwing herself on a stormy night, hold on to that stormy night, into a rather deep and swift river, from a high bank somewhat resembling a cliff and perished there decidedly by her own caprice only because she wanted to be like Shakespeare's Ophelia. Oh. This is a, a beautiful woman. She's got a dowry, um, an aristocratic family probably. Ophelia, even then, if the cliff chosen and cherished from long ago had not been so picturesque, if it had merely a flat prosaic bank, the suicide might have not have taken place. That is, she's living a romantic world out of literature. And I, I, you can laugh. How many of us, remember Plato's, I'm not kidding about this, remember Plato's cave? There's none of us in the world that isn't shaped by works of literature. We're in that cave. We grew up in a world. Freud, Marx, Darwin, Copernicus, you know, whoever. So Plato's claim is, we're attracted to shades. How much of our life is a reflection of shades? This is Dante. This is Dante's image in the Purgatorio when Stasius arrives because he himself is a shade. 
how much of us gets attached to these images on the wall and treat them as shades? Well, or put it differently, you know that the opening goes on to the metaphysical world. Who's more real as, hum as humans? We here on this earth or human beings in paradise? Who's more real? Hmm? Think people. Because they're... Incarnation would say, yes, real. They are, right? Whatever we are, we will be shades next to them. We know that from Christ. Remember when Peter says, let's stay here in the transfiguration, and Paul says, I have not seen. We have no idea what that... I mean, we've got hints of that there will be this extraordinary fullness to our human nature, and that not the same bodies, they'll be changed, but there will be a fullness, and a re fullness of reality to them that we lack. So in comparison to them, we're shades. And the fact that we see each other the way we do in this cave means we tend to worship shades. How many of us go through life and reach a point where you're disillusioned you say, holy cow, I gave my life to that. It was a shade. It wasn't real. Think about pornography on the web. The way we live by images that we attach such an importance to at the expense of our life, it's as if they're feeding on us vampirically. This whole cult of the living dead today on television, yeah. where, where does that come from? It didn't appear 50 years ago, and it didn't come out of nowhere. It's speaking to an actual fact in our time. What we're going to experience as we move through this is that these are real people like us, and Dostoevsky is going to present them in a way that will make it clear how much these other influences are playing a role in their life, and they don't even realize it, and what it's going to do to their lives. So on the surface, it looks like a tragic work. It's going to be full of despair, and there will be a murder at the center of it, and lying and different sides, and battling, betrayals. Um, it is one of the most hopeful works in the modern world. So that's where we're going, okay? Pay attention to the narrator, okay? He's very personable. He keeps talking about people as if they're among us. He belongs to the town, he belongs to the monastery, he's speaking for them. Watch how good he is, because he, he's very good at representing <coughs> individual people and their individual language, their quirks in language. He's that good, that he's not imposing his language on them the way Dickens would. Dickens is omniscient, he's projecting a world out. Um, this guy's a particular character, and he's very faithful to the language of different people. He's among them. And yet there are times he gives us access to something that there's no way he could have had access to. But the narrator's an important person. He's, he's involved in that world, and he's involving us in it. So, okay, we're on our way. So next week, we start with these Russian wow. characters. Wow. Thank you. Wonderful. Wow. I know. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Please take donuts, you guys. Well, oh man, that was a jump.
That's good. Well, yeah, they're the same. Ah, okay. Yeah, he said he's got another contract. Easier to follow along. You got a copy. Okay. 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 Sort of general and broad, but well, but I like the big brush. You know, you just paint that. Uh,